and I spent three days inside a decompression chamber. Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creators in marketing tech and digital, this is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People Podcast with Dan Mordab and... And Phil Jones. You, say, you, you always sound so, like, you know, matter-of-fact, you know. There's no, <laughs> it's just, and Phil Jones, I'm just Phil. You're I'm not just, just Phil, Phil, just Phil. My dad was Phil Jones. I'm Phil Jones, and my son was Phil Jones until he changed his name to PJ. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. This is going to be a happy. <laughs> this is going to be a happy episode, Phil. Exactly. So, just tell me, how's your week been? Uh, it's been a great week, actually. Uh, nice to see Man United back in the Champions League. Uh, I must admit, when I saw they were drawn against PSG in Paris, I was uh, a bit sceptical, but they were amazing. Fantastic game, and Marcus Rashford, I thought, was just tremendous. Also lovely to see his bill being discussed in Parliament, and I'm sorry that they didn't give him the sport that he deserves. Amazing guy. Yeah, he is an amazing guy, and, and it's you know when when you see what he's done over lockdown, you kind of you appreciate that you know when someone's got a cause in their in their heart and in their mind when they, and they go for it, you realise what impact they can have. You know, I mean, I, I agree with you, Marcus Rashford. I can't agree with you. And it's great to see Man United win. <laughs> but, but no, that's that's brilliant. And we've got a great we've got a great guest today, Phil. Um, so introduce us. Uh, well, I'm going to introduce you today to someone who's probably not interested in football at all because he's from New <laughs> Zealand and they, they don't play it over there, do they? Uh, but Michael Tomes is really from agency owner to property developer to creator of the ultimate industry resource for companies creative projects, information and jobs. Today we're going to speak to Michael. He founded Creative Pool and discover the inspiration behind his idea and to find out how it's evolved to become a globally recognised 300,000 strong creative community. Over to you, Michael. Good morning. morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good, good. Good. Now I know you're busy, so we're going to have a, a, a quick chat this morning because you have got the next annual coming up, and I know that uh, that must take a little bit of time and energy from you. Yeah, more than more than a bit of time and energy, and this, <laughs> the whole thing was a complete shit show. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. Well, look. Let's start with the. We want to find out all about you, Michael. And let's start with a very, very serious question. We're going to go deep straight away. If you were stuck in the lift with someone, who would it be and why? Yeah, so you, you sent me this. You sent me this. And it's like, <laughs> does the person have to be real or alive or does it not matter? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Go for it. My problem is that I've never really had anybody I've looked up to. Like, uh, And I don't want to sound like an arrogant dick when I say that, which is probably how everyone will take it. But there isn't anyone that I can think of that I haven't met that I would actually want to be stuck in a lift with. The only people I would like to be stuck in a lift with are the people I hate. Yeah, so I can actually. <laughs> so you could stick me in a lift with Donald Trump, so I could call him a prick. That would be good. <laughs> um, failing that, probably the lift operator. That would be good, so they can get me out of there. But uh, I'm also I'm also hugely uh, anti-religious. I think it's one of the biggest scourges on the planet Earth. So God would be helpful if you could get him to turn up. 
Right. That would that would settle a few things if he didn't turn up. That would uh, tick that one off off the list, well and truly. So, and as far as the industry goes, I mean, I've done quite a few interviews with people. I um, I interviewed Martin Sorrell a couple of years ago, and I have the had the claim to fame that he had two connections on LinkedIn, and I was one of them. Um, I don't know if that's the case anymore. I haven't looked for a while. So there we go. Uh, so no, I mean probably a bit of a cop out there on the actual answer, but uh, no, no, it's good. As we'll say yeah. before, we've heard the sublime to the ridiculous. It's <laughs> somewhere in between. So <laughs> that that will do. That will do. Cool. How would you feel if the, those two connections—that one was you and the other was Donald Trump? How would I feel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, you don't need to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what was it that brought you over from New Zealand across to the UK in the first place? Tell us tell us how you got here. So I, I left New Zealand in 1999. Uh, that's when I, yeah. And um, New Zealand's changed a lot. You know, it's the economy and everything back there was, wasn't what it is today. The pound was three to one. Um, and New Zealand's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, like literally. Yeah, the closest place to New Zealand is Australia, and that's a three-hour flight. So you can get pretty much from here to Morocco. You know, that's how close New Zealand is to Australia. So the opportunities was always to come over here and you know, experience. You know, New Zealand is a beautiful country, but it doesn't have that you know, that depth of history to it. Um, you know, it doesn't have the culture of European cities. And so for me, it was an exciting opportunity to be able to get away and, and see the world. I mean, you know, there's apparently there's a million Kiwis traveling around the world at any one time and out of a population of 4 million people, you're talking about a quarter of the population being out of the country at any one time. So me and three mates, we were talking about this and we decided that we should uh, get on our push bikes and try and make it from Sydney to Scotland. And um, so we flew out. <laughs> we had no planning. We didn't do any planning. We didn't think about it. We bought bikes. We bought a couple of panniers. And then we flew to Sydney. And um, the next day, we just started riding. Um, and we started to uh, head up in Australia. I had, again, this kind of, 1999 is kind of pre-internet. So finding out information wasn't as easy as it is today. So I had no bloody idea how big Australia was. I mean, <laughs> it's massive. Like, and we got there. And then it took us three, three, two and a half, three months to get from from uh, from Sydney up to Townsville and then Townsville across the desert into Darwin. And honestly, the lack of planning, foresight <laughs> and information that we had to do any of this was second to none. Um, then I got the, I actually got the bends when I was in, in Townsville and I spent three days inside a decompression chamber, <laughs> which was <laughs> to get over that. Uh, and then finally got to... Uh, um, where did we go from there? Then we got on a boat, so from Clownsville across to, to um, was it Cairns? Is that the one at the top? Is Cairns the one right at the top? I can't even remember now. Cairns is the beautiful scuba diving in Cairns, that isn't right it? At the top? Yeah, I can't remember. Was it Cairns on the top? Anyway, anyway, I got on a boat from there, and I went from there to Timor. And I didn't realise at the moment, at that stage, Timor was having a huge bloody war, wasn't it? So I landed into a war zone. <laughs> Um, and then just started to make my, make, make my way through all the islands of Indonesia. And then I got to, um, got to Jakarta. 
And I was at that stage, I was trying to catch up with my mates because they buggered off before me. They didn't want to wait around while I was in the decompression chamber. <laughs> they legged it. So I, <laughs> I, I caught up with them about halfway through Indonesia. Um, can't remember which island it was. And then we got to Jakarta. And um, they they kind of split off from there. We'd had enough of each other by, by then, I think. Um, and um, I made it over to Singapore. And then I sat in Singapore. Sat in, uh, I was, well, I was. That year was the um, year of the uh, first sort of democratic elections in Indonesia. So I was pretty much the only person there um, other than foreign correspondents. <laughs> Everybody else had cleared out of it. So it was, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, but it was an amazing time. Yeah, I absolutely loved it when I was there. And then I got to Singapore, got to Singapore and I thought, oh, well, I better go and do something. So I um, bought myself a flight. And um, went to the Netherlands. I don't know why. And then I hung out there for about a month. And then I ended up coming into maybe I was sorting out my visa or something. I can't remember. Now. And then I ended up coming to London. Yeah. So that's that how was, I, that's how that, I got it. That was 1997. 1999. 1999. Yeah. So uh, leaping forward, then seven or eight years, the, you came up with the idea of Creative Pool mm. around about 2007. Yeah. So what was the interim? What were you doing in London apart from cycling? So I did a um I I got here and I ended I ended up getting back on the tools. So I, I was a, I had a design company back in New Zealand. Um I was a pretty shit designer if I'm honest. Um but I um I came over here learned about what recruitment consultants were because you know like I, they didn't really exist in New Zealand at the time. And um so I went along and I mean how do you place someone who hasn't really had a career and design other than having their own design company um what do you do with them and um, i ended up being an art worker um, freelance art worker and then a studio manager um for a couple of years and it saved up a bit of money and i went back home for a bit um did up a house back at home bought another house at home then came back to the uk and bought a house down in falmouth i don't know why (laughs) A lot of the a lot of the things that have happened to me in my life, I look back and I absolutely have no fucking idea how or why I did them, um, and that continues today. <laughs> and um, so, you know, while I was doing this house up during the day, I was I was getting up at six and working till about six, and then in, in the evening I knew the internet was going to be a pretty big thing, um, and so I'd scribbled down a few ideas of what I would like to do. Um, and I chose probably what appeared to me at the time was possibly the easiest, um, but in hindsight has turned out to probably be the hardest. Um, and it was a, a starting up then as well, yeah, the, the whole funding thing and the startup culture and all that exists today. Like, you know, as you're saying, you run an incubator. Um, none of that existed then. Uh, it just wasn't really a thing. Um, so I scraped together what money I could and yeah, started off Creative Pool. Yeah, the main reason for me was... That, that first experience of me coming to the UK and being able to not being able to find a job, I was in that too hard basket. You know, I was in that. How do I actually get placed? Because um, you can't really. I'm I'm unemployable. Like <laughs> there's no, there is absolutely no way that somebody would employ me because I'm not. I have a huge problem with authority. So um, being told what to do just doesn't work for me at all. Um, so having a boss just. <laughs> just it, would, it wouldn't work it really wouldn't work so uh yeah that's so, the, so the, the brainwave the whole creative pool idea that came as a result of your experiences yourself actually over here but 
tell us about how you came up with the idea and how you launched Creative Pool. What were the intentions at the time? The, the internet only does one thing. The internet, the only thing it does is it connects you to something. So that's all the internet does. Um, and so the whole premise, if you're coming up with an idea and you want to utilize the internet or now with mobile, is to figure out what you can use that connection to do. Um, so I, the three ideas I had was out eating, which was going to be Deliveroo, I guess, or you know, Just Eat or whatever it is. In eating, which was, oh no, in eating was, was Deliveroo, and then out eating was kind of the restaurant thing. And I got another URL for hotels. Um, and those are the three ideas. And then Creative Pool for me was kind of like the easiest. It's like, let's have, a, let's have a space for people to be able to showcase what they do and be in control of their own careers, be in control of their own destiny and be able to get their, themselves put in front of other people um, without having to go through a middleman or without, um, without having to... I just can take control of what they do. The ultimate aim of Creative Pool has always been one of being able to connect the entire industry and, again, opening up opportunities um, outside of outside of geographic location, outside of who you know. This industry is so who you know, and it still is. Um, and the idea was the smaller, for me, the smaller, I had a small agency, um, you know, and there's lots of bigger agencies in New Zealand that I couldn't compete with. Um, you even, didn't even get on the list or capabilities and what you could do were as good, if not better, and nine times out of 10, or 99 times out of 100, cheaper. You know, the cost effectiveness of what a smaller agency can do is a lot better. They don't have the overheads and they don't have the, you know, the huge buildings and, you know, flash receptions that the, that the big agencies have. So the whole idea of Creative Pool is to democratise the entire process. So it's to make it an even playing field where everyone has one page to showcase what they do. Um, you have one opportunity to be able to say, this is our capabilities, regardless of having to look at our shiny office and our huge back-end staff. This is what we can do. And to make the connections as well. You know, As you know, the, the agency world is littered with freelancers and littered with um, you know, production companies and uh, service companies who do a lot of the work for these the, the bigger agencies, but they never, ever get the accolades. So it was a way, f that was the idea, democratisation of sort of the industry, really. Amazing. In your experience, then, having started that with that as the idea, all these years later, you've got 150,000 members, I believe. 300. 300,000. 300,000 individual yeah. members. Yeah, 25,000 agencies now. 5,000, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's, that's quite amazing. So how, how do you coordinate all that? How do you actually, because <laughs> you, you're talking one, I assume that the agencies very often employ the people who are the individuals yeah that are on your boat. yeah i mean we try and keep out of it as much as possible um you know the idea is that we're a facilitator we're there to make those connections so we spent a huge amount of money on development um it was interesting with creative pool we started off as a sales-based organization um it was very much because no one really knew what the internet was you know, no one really knew how to utilize what you could use the internet for now there's kind of apex companies in each of the sectors so in ours it's linkedin you know linkedin has now become what creative pool wanted to be just for the creative industries for 15 years i don't know whatever how many years ago i try not to think about that actually um 
Yeah, so we started off, it was very sales-based. The reason for that is that people needed hand-holding and explanation. This is how you post a job. This is how you do a profile. This is that. Now that's all kind of ubiquitous. You know, anyone can do that now. So our job really is just developing the site in such a way that those connections happen without you having to do anything, that the suggestions and ways that you interact with the platform are done, not done for you, but they're there and they're obvious. So... Our job really is to make sure that whatever you're here to do, that gets presented to you um, and you can be able to fulfill that yourself. So I try and keep out of it as much as possible if I can. From what I can see, it's mainly visual, isn't it? Yeah. I encourage people to be showing what they're doing rather than talking about what they're doing. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, the description is still a part of it. Um, and the contributor aspect of the site is the thing that we're growing, the content side of things. So again, being able to have kind of a, yeah, the big problem, I don't, I'm not, I don't use social media. I'm not, I'm not a Facebook person or, you know, a Twitter person or anything like that. And the reason for it is just the noise, you know, like the, just the, the amount of crap from my friends or anybody. Um, yeah. Most of what they, <laughs> they, uh, every time I go on there, I just, it's a quick look to just go, Oh no, this is not for me. Um, <laughs> so we do we do a magazine, uh, a yeah, online magazine on Creative Pool, and the idea is it's curated. So we give everyone opportunity to be able to post articles and thought leadership pieces about themselves or about their company, uh, and we take the best of those and we curate them and disseminate that across the network. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, I think that's a bigger conversation as well as about how news and social media are interacting. And that's kind of come to the fore during the presidential elections of 2016 and even more so now, um, you know, with the big social media companies who always just thought they, that they had no responsibility on doing, you know, they could just, whatever you wanted to post is fine. Um, and I think that that people are being turned away from that now. Um, I think people are understanding that, What's true or not true cannot necessarily be described or done by the crowd. <coughs> and there's lots of nefarious actors involved in, uh, in content that gets distributed on the, uh, on the internet. So, yeah. yeah. Tell us about the, I mean, the pandemic. You actually personally, uh, you personally got involved in it this year. Cause yeah, I, I did. I, I think you, you yourself were ill. <laughs> I was. And, and you've done a survey amongst uh, what I assume was all 300,000 members about the, how the pandemics affected them. So can you just give us, first of all, coming down with it yourself, that must have been pretty tough with three yeah. kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was tough. I, um, I got it very early on, at the end of February, when there was 15, 20-something cases in London. And I'd already been working from home at that stage. Um, so it's like, how the hell? I can't, I can't have this. I mean, this is just stupid. But I never really got the flu. I was sick for about six weeks, kind of flu-y type symptoms. And then for a week, I coughed. And morning, noon, night, like 24-7 for a week, I coughed. Um, and uh, that just wiped me out. And I was probably another, another month or so, I was still ill. And for those of you with kids, uh, I had a little two-year-old and he was sick for 10 weeks as well. And he went, got, went to hospital twice. So uh, oh, this, wow. uh, this thing that it only affects, it's a, I think everyone knows it's a lottery. The whole thing's a lottery, isn't it? It's, uh, you don't know who it's going to hit and how, how hard it's going to hit them. Um, the 
The survey, yeah. So we did the survey at um, kind of, when was that? April, May time, I guess, looking at the industry um, and seeing how much it was going to affect. And we've actually got a run um, and a, a follow-up of that that's going to be coming out probably in the next three weeks, um, looking at where we are, you know, what's actually happened. Um, I think the, that, uh, the, the biggest thing that's interesting for me is seeing the variations um, across you know, the different countries and how they've dealt with it. It's interesting to see Asia doing so much better than Western Europe because they've obviously been through a lot of it. Um, that's the SARS um, side of things. I mean, America's just done a, an appalling job of it, and the UK is probably not far behind, if I'm honest. Yeah. So. <laughs> how about New Zealand? Yeah, well, New Zealand's not. I haven't read much about New Zealand. Um, yeah, it doesn't doesn't come up very often at all. I don't know how well they've done. <laughs> well, I, I believe you, you actually got involved yourself in the clinical plasma trials. Is that, yeah, yeah. Is that ongoing, or is that something you did? No, I went along and got it. Um, that was about... I guess six weeks ago, seven weeks ago now, and my antibodies are already too low for um, them to uh, use it. So um, I got the, the letter. Cool machine though. It actually <laughs> takes the blood out, takes the plasma out in real time, and then puts your, the blood back in. Incredible. Did you, was that in Falmouth where you had that done or in, up in town? No, 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 it's in, it's in London, yeah. Yeah. Now Falmouth is a beautiful place to live. So I, I, Envy you. That's really envy. I, I, I don't live there now. I live in London. I bought the house up. I bought, did a house up down there. I sold it. That's how I started Creative Four. I got the oh, money for selling that. In Falmouth. No. No, 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 no. I would do, I would do that. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. Well, it's sort of seven years ago, it says, it was the start of your global expansion. So before that, it was mainly UK, was it? Or? Yeah. We moved yeah. from a .co.uk to a .com. Um, and what we, when I started Creative Hall, I probably wasn't, I probably wasn't um, as ambitious as I could have been. Um, no money, no, no investment, um, a sort of simpler idea. What I probably should have done if the, sort of the culture existed back then in a bit better format, which was to, to get funding and go, go for it right from the beginning. Um, so it took us a long time. I mean, we're still developing the site now, yeah, daily. There's, uh, there's tweaks and changes happening to it constantly. Um, going global was always the, the idea. It just took 10 odd years to do it. Brilliant. Dan, over to you, young man. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, there's so many questions I've got, you know, around the detail to go from zero to 300,000 members to go from, you know, startup to into a global business you obviously hire a lot of people now i mean you know you're right sort of front and center of the whole industry now that kind of growth and, and just you know just generally in life you know you know older and older and let's say wiser but I'm what sure was some I of agree the, with that <laughs> let's just say older um, yeah, just say what, what what were some of the good decisions you made or some of the best decisions you made along the way you know and, and flip the his head what are some of the worst on a personal level uh, this is the one thing i try to live my life by and that is i i don't regret anything i've done i don't see the point in ever looking back and saying i wish i could have i wish i did um, I think it's destructive. It's different to be able to look back and go, 
I've learned from that um, and I can move on and I can do something you know, else because I have learned that. But looking back and actually saying, I wish I had done that or I shouldn't have done that, I, I genuinely think it's destructive. I think you should never do that. Creative pool has been, it's been both. You know, there's been plenty of decisions I have made that were right. There's been plenty of ones I've done that were wrong. Um, I can't change any of them. Um, so all I try to do is ensure that I develop on them and don't make them again. Um, but dwelling on them and looking back at them and sort of signaling them out, I, I don't think it's a good idea. But having said that, so I can give you a quick little story. When I actually launched Creative Pool, the first sort of thing that I did was I created um, T-shirts with a toaster on it that was flying through the air um, that said break free on it. And I did a flyer. The one side had a bunch of grey-looking sad toasters um, saying, what did it say? Uh, Job sucks. And then on the other reverse was this flying toaster through the blue sky. And I hired um, 30 people, stuck them in T-shirts, gave them uh, the flyers, and we stood outside of five or six key um, London tube stations just saying, job sucks, job sucks to everyone on a Monday morning. And that was our that was our launch of Creative Pool. At the end of the day, it already signed up a thousand people, which for me was just incredible. Um, Amazing, couldn't couldn't believe it. But that's how how it started. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I can't really answer that. I can't really answer that question. You know, there's been, I think every element of what you do has good and bad elements to it anyway. Um, as long as you make a mistake and you learn from it, and as long as you do something right and you learn from it then I don't think anything you do, fundamentally some things are wrong, but you wouldn't have made those decisions in the first place. You know? Absolutely, yeah. You, when you make a decision, you're doing it on the basis of the information that you had available at the time. Um, and as long as you are methodical in the way that you think about something um, and you do your risk assessment, even if it's just a small in your head, you know, this is a good idea, This is a, why is this a good idea, why is this a bad idea, what could go wrong, what could go right, is the right bigger than the, the wrong and is that proportion worth the amount of money or time of effort as long as you do that i mean you're not going to get it right every time you know so um no, absolutely enjoying our podcast remember to subscribe share and leave us a review and do you feel like do you feel like um you know the the growth of creative pool has that been something that's been steady and consistent over the years or is that something that you know there were there were marked changes or, or those sort of you know those golden moments when there was a big breakthrough? You know it's interesting with business growth because you get both sides of that coin, don't you? You get a lot of businesses that just they grow because they're good companies that generally make good decisions at the right time. Mm -hmm. Like you just said, and you get those companies that have have the wow moment, the moment they broke through, it was the big client or it was the big the big award or the big event that you know it all it all happened. What's that been like for you? Um I, there was a, I once saw a graph and there was a sort of lovely scale graph which sort of, you know, logarithmic exponential from left to right and it goes what the world sees and then the entrepreneur's side of it which is this jagged up and down <laughs> spiky thing the whole way like that. Um, our membership doubles every, every year um, so it is on that path. Um, we're actually tailoring the site now to stop people from joining. Um, we delete a lot of people. Uh, we don't let people, a lot of people on it. 
the company's section's going to get harder. Um, we've already been started clearing out a lot of people from there as well. Um, we realize that we're at a specialist in this industry and that we, we are better off looking after the, the ones that are good at what they do um, rather than the mass. If you want the mass, then you go to LinkedIn. That's where you know, everything is. LinkedIn's got a really interesting model, though, with the, the people side of things and the fact that it has attracted a lot of top you know, people um, within the industry. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. But as far as the, the growth goes, yeah, I mean, there, has, there hasn't been anything in particular that's a big spike. The annual does bring in a lot of people um, that we do, that getting people along to come along and vote for that. Um, and growing that as a as a as an award in the industry, and just again having a different slant on how awards work, and doing that people's choice is, is a fun part of it. Let the people who are involved in it be able to, um, uh, you know, celebrate being shortlisted, um, as you would know, Phil from this year. <laughs> I was surprised. I have to when I, when uh, up to a certain point. You were showing people how they were doing, and yeah, yeah, and the little sector that I was nominated in was creative influencer, and I, I when it got down to a shorter number of people, and I was actually in the higher numbers, I was between a Brazilian, an Italian, and some other nationality. I can't remember who was, but the that whole little group. I thought yeah, that's when I realised the scale of what you're doing. It's quite. Yeah. Amazing. I, I honestly, I'd, I'd never taken that in previously. Mm. I had assumed it was, it would be more European, and and mainly more UK. But it isn't at all, is it? No, no. I mean, we try and find the best people that we can across the globe, um, and that's again, that's that democratization of what we're doing and being able to disseminate ideas and mm. um, and support and help the industry. That's and diversity's. I diversity is one of those sort of things that a lot of people talk about now. And I've always struggled with the idea of diversity because I personally don't see how or why anybody would make a decision based on how good a person is at their role based on anything other than how good they are at their role. Um, so it's been a, one of the biggest challenges for us uh, were a lot of a lot of the sort of flack and stuff that we get through the site is people asking us about our diversity and you know and i always i'd like i struggle with it because for me i still don't understand the mentality of someone who's so stupid to look, look at a person based on their sexual orientation or the color of their skin to make a decision on how fucking good they are at something it's like might me personally, I, I I really really struggle with that concept. It just doesn't matter. Like it, it never has mattered to me. You know, I've travelled extensively. Maybe it's because I've travelled so extensively through my life. Um, maybe it's because I do come from quite a poor background um, that I just don't ever think about. I've never thought in that way. So um, when everything that we do at Creative Pool is based around that, being able to give a platform for everybody. Um, and when it comes to the influencer list, that means finding the best people on the planet, um, regardless of who they work for or what they've done. Or um, And it's and that grows each year. You'll, you'll see next year because you'll be in, involved in the selection process for next year. Um, so this year's influencers choose next year's influencers. Yeah. Um, again, we're not the experts necessarily in being able to 
figure out who the best people are, um, but the community and the people that we put on as judges and the people who we could put in the influences. The first year when we chose the influences was the most important because um, that, that was the platform that would help it to be able to grow in the correct way. So I spent a huge amount of time ensuring, going through lists and awards judges and other awards panels and looking at, you know, you know, looking through CAN and looking through the design awards, you know, around the world, DNAD and all that kind of stuff to make sure that the, that first group were as diverse um, and, you know, politically, you know, uh, geographically, et cetera, as I possibly could. And that's the thing is that you get this, you get the seed right of an idea um, and you think about that, you get that part right, then it will grow into what you want it to. That's brilliant. So can a Man United fan win Influencer of the Year? Is that what who's, a, who's, a man, who's a Man United fan? Mr. Jones. Is he? <laughs> he is. Can we change I mean, our nomination? Like I said, in the diversity states, I think <laughs> that is fine. We don't, we don't, we don't look at any uh, football club uh, supporters in any different light. Okay, okay, we'll take that. And when's the big announcement? When is this going out? The, uh, after the announcement, I would have thought. Good. So Monday. It'll be out on Monday. Okay. On, mon- <laughs> <laughs> on Monday. Here we go. Yeah, this will go a couple of weeks later. Don't worry. So you could be celebrating a Brazilian winning that particular thing, an Italian. Yeah. Or a grey-haired old Mancunian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, tell me about uh, your community. The way that you see yourselves hmm. is very much a community. And who are your rivals? Who are the direct rivals? And who do you see as the people that would be comfortable and uncomfortable to work with in the community sector? I mean, LinkedIn's the main the main competitor, really, for the, that side of what we do. So there's, the, the site's got key parts. The, the LinkedIn part, which is kind of what we the foundation of what we were, um, the company directory side of things, which we've actually got some quite big announcements to make over the next, um, again, don't, well, I'm going to say a few months because then that gives me plenty of time. Um, <laughs> so that, that's the other, the other key part of it. Um, the awards, I mean, we compete against absolutely everybody who runs an awards. Uh, and on the content side of things, uh, it's probably varying towards creative review type um, content that we're looking for rather than um, your news-based kind of um, ad week uh, campaign kind of work. So as far as what the whole package of what we do, there, there isn't really anybody who does that specifically for the creative industries the way that we do it. Um, you know, looking after an agency or a creative services company to be able to market themselves and recruit through them uh, and, and recruit um, as well. Uh, doesn't really exist on any other platform. Um, but, yeah, as far as the individual parts we do, there's tons of competitors. Um, but it's been able to try that, 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 that ecosystem where you can do anything that you want to do within the industry um, and connect all those parts together. Uh, isn't really done by anybody else, just for our industry. Just, you know, yeah. On the portfolio side, probably Behance is the biggest one um, yeah, in the world. Uh, but that's again it doesn't the depth within the industry and the understanding of the industry I don't think they do the same way that we do so someone like the drum would probably you'd cross over with the awards wouldn't you yeah yeah well well we have one award so uh yeah but they uh 
without you knowing it, because I'm not sure how well you know Gordon Young, but I do know I, when I look at you, the way that you sent out all those people wearing T-shirts to go and drum up some excitement that day, I think of someone like Gordon. Yeah. He, he would do it. He'd hire a double-decker bus. <laughs> yeah. And put a banner on the side of it and park outside whoever he wanted to. And, yeah. Or, and I just think that is as a special sort of person that just uh, breaks tradition and actually does things that are, uh, you could say, down and dirty, but it's yeah, actually yeah. quite, you know, it's real. Yeah. Um, tell us about the platform that you're you're actually on. Is it something you've built in-house? Is it, what, yeah, what are your yeah. plans for the platform? Hand-coded, every single line. Wow. Yeah, every wow. single line. That's mega. <laughs> Oh, it's ridiculous. Every time you touch anything, you know, it's like uh, there's just, yeah, when it started, again, you know, I'll give you one. You asked before about a piece of advice. If you're ever developing anything, make sure that you get the fundamentals of your platform sorted um, right from the beginning. Yeah, when we started, there wasn't really any frameworks or anything like that. There was kind of a few things that, um, but, you know, I started Code Pool on five grand. Um, I, well, I had. I had two guys working for me, and that grew to a team of, well, a lot at one point. But yeah, you know, it's uh, the main, the biggest plans for me now is the the uh, the briefing tool for agencies. Um, being able to, um, we've have more and more of. You would have noticed on the judges for this year's annual, we have more of a relationship with brands. Um, I'm uh, doing a a um, doing a studio crowd at the moment for HP. We've got a big thing for Adobe coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, and this inter interaction with the brands is the key. This is the last part of the journey for me. Um, so being able to have a way for, uh, for the brands to be able to brief directly to the, to the agencies, um, that's the, the key part that, uh, that you'll see changing. Um, so then with a studio crowd, which is crowdsourcing from the entire community, studio gigs, which is freelancers, I need a logo, I need a website kind of stuff. Uh, and then studio briefs, which will be briefing to agencies and creative services providers. Um, and then that's it. That's, I, I, that should be all of everything done. I heard you doing an interview with a lady at Adweek, maybe maybe five years ago, four years ago, whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the things you mentioned then was the agency client relationship and how you felt that the agencies were missing a trick because they were like the uh, you use as an example uber uber and you were thinking that maybe uber should have been an idea that an agency presented to a client yeah just expand on that a little bit how do you see the agency <laughs> brand relationship because you're going to impact on that with what you're doing yeah yeah very much so um i think the thing is that the in general, the agencies have got to figure out what they what they do now. If 30-second TV is commercial, I mean, there's always going to be 30-second TV commercials. There's always going to be that side of things. But that, that is not necessarily the apex anymore. Um, I think Martin Sorrell and his first purchase, um, as far as being S4 Capital, shows the guy that knows where the industry is going. Um, you know, media monks aren't an ad firm. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're a digital, proper digital agency. And if these, 
there's always going to be the space for the uh, there's always going to be space for advertising but as far as what i think a brand wants um, and needs now is that ability to be able to be innovative and be able to see where things are going and go to them with ideas so the creative agency you know in its in its name is creative and that's the whole thing is that they should be coming up with these ideas that they're there for their innovation their innovative ideas and their innovative um, ways that you should be doing things so the same way that you can look at a product and come up with, it with a great ad or a great way of looking at it or you know, a new branding way of being able to take that brand and change it and mold it in somebody's minds, they should need to be looking at the entire process, not just about tweaking one part of it. And it's like, for me, the example with, um, with Uber was just that Someone should, the people who were working with London Cabs, say, or the Yellow Cab Company or something, they, they should have seen this coming. You know, they should have been able to say, look, this is the way that the world is moving. You know, we should try and get onto it. Mm. Um, and I think that you can filter that down, um, you know, to, to any brand and any any product. You know, there, there's, there's disruption happening. There's lots of money around still in the startup scene. Um, FinTech's a perfect example. I mean, you see so many of these new you know, financial products being brought out by people with virtually no experience in the industry whatsoever. Um, definitely no sort of banking background coming up with these innovative products because they can see it in a different way. And I think an, an agency, or if you want to call it an innovation agency, or somebody who's looking at the, the brand and the product and the company and what it should be doing, how can it... An agency's job is to get you more customers. Um, that's the bottom line. Um, and being pigeonholed into doing it as a banner ad or you know a TV commercial is probably the wrong way to be thinking about it now. And again, going back to Sorrell's kind of... You know, purchase of media monks that's the way that they they approach things the thing that they want to achieve is getting more customers and how do we do that and it's not we create 30 second tv ads therefore we do a 30 second tv ad that was more the point more than anything else social media has changed absolutely everything um you know social media influencers have got it made a huge dent in how brands can interact with their own their own customer base um and that 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 direct connection was always filled by agencies and that's being slowly but surely you know removed um, brands are becoming a bit more brave they have more control over their own social media um, and there are tiers in this of course as well yeah there's a big difference between a small brand a medium brand and a multinational um, but i think that being able to call yourself an agency now or calling yourself a creative agency should mean that you should be able to look at the problem and come up with the best solution to the problem, not take what you do and fit it to the problem. Yeah, absolutely agree. Dan, Dan's going to ask you the last couple of questions, and, and one of them is going to cover that, really, isn't it? Well, it is indeed. That's music to my ears, that is. But I think, as well, <laughs> the other side of that is agencies themselves being able to innovate and being able to actually be in tune with where these modern problems are. Mm. Because those problems, as much as technologies help them, it's actually created a layer of complexity, right? Because there's so many channels, there's so many platforms, there's so many mediums. So as an agency, when, if you're a traditional creative agency, 
how do you adopt that into a, into a mobile first digital world you know mm -hmm. if you're a, a a mobile agency how do you understand value proposition and understand you know the actual the the compelling reasons people should believe your brand you know so it's quite a complex world out there i think one of the things we've tried to do as an agency over the last few years is distill that proposition to where do we really help customers and very simply for us we take modern te complex technology problems we make them simple yeah. so, right, you've got all this complexity these systems don't talk to each other your digital platforms are a mess here's the solution mm -hmm. and ultimately that as you said it, it creates more customers it creates easier engagement it creates uh, a simpler route to market all of that stuff but having said that there, there you know there's complexities right and life is complex. So I want to ask you this question. This isn't a, an industry question. This is a, a big picture life question. Or it could be an industry answer. Uh, you know, let me not make it too big. But what, what's one of life's complexities that you would like to see made simpler? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, one of life's complexities. What's, what's, I don't know. Listen, Honestly, for, someone, for someone that's travelled on a bike through half of Australia yeah. to get to a boat that will take you to a, an island that's in war, <laughs> I imagine, I imagine uh, nothing's that complex, really. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I <laughs> well, maybe you like complex. Maybe you like things being complex. Yeah, I do, actually. Funnily enough, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, do I do quite like complex things. There's nothing in particular that I... Um, I mean, especially with... And especially in the... You know the Western world. I mean, for God's sake, you know, talk, talk about first world problems. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't think I don't think anything's particularly complex. And if it's too complex, you can't be asked with it. Like, you know, just don't don't get involved in it. Like, uh, or fix it. <laughs> like, the one yeah. of the two. <laughs> don't um, get involved or fix it. There we go. Yeah. I like that. I like that. <laughs> okay, another question on the whole wonderful theme. Obviously, it's been um, it's been tough, and it's not. Let's not lie. You've obviously had you know the, the personal health challenges with COVID, the industry's been in a, in, in a state of flux for many people, but for many people there's been big opportunities, right? So yeah. what was the last thing you saw that you looked at and thought, you know what, that's wonderful. That stands out above the crowd. That That's making a difference. Mm. <laughs> yeah, this is another interesting one. In the industry. In life. It doesn't have to be in the, in the industry. I think the moon's pretty wonderful. I saw that the other night. That was amazing. <laughs> True. Did you see uh, Elon Musk's um, satellites flying around the Earth? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, they were they were flying around. It was yeah, bizarre. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I what's wonderful, uh, David Attenborough. That what everything he does is wonderful. True. Um, he's knocking on a hundred. So. Um, yeah, the things that I find wonderful aren't necessarily from this industry. You know, I'm very, you know, I mean, I'm 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 big into nature. Um, I spend a lot of time. Um, I spend a lot of time out in it. Amateur kind of botanist in in some ways. I'm really into physics. I spend a lot of time reading physics books. So, I, when I went to university, I spent more time in physics lectures, even though I was doing bachelor of commerce. Um, so I spent a lot of time time doing that. Um, ultimately, the thing that's wonderful is my little boy, Maru. I mean, uh, every day I see him, every hug I get from him makes me feel very special. Oh, that's awesome. a great answer. I've got a feeling, Michael, if we if we kept scratching, we'd get all sorts of 
weird and wonderful answers. I thank you so much for right. your time, your answers, insight into your life and into creative ball. And I know this is going to be a, a popular episode. Thank you, Michael Tomes, founder of Creative Ball. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for being me, guys. Thank you, Michael. Nice one. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.